0: So exams are back. Yuck. Right? Everybody hates me now? They hated me before, so. It was it was lower than I'd expect. I think I know where the problem is, so I'll talk about that in a little in a minute. So I think I know cuz because when I looked through and, and looked at the questions, I found where people really missed everything and it was all it was all one section. So I'll talk about that when I get there. On the I'm going to go over the ones that are big check chunk of the class, at least half the class missed, so I will, I'm will. i going to go over those. If you want to go over any of the others, you know, can see me after class or I'll be happy to go over and help you with any of the other answers. On the true-false, well there were two issues, one of which I fixed. The first one, was The first one was the one that a little over half the class missed was number four, which said a telescope with an eight inch mirror will collect twice as much light as one with a four inch mirror. You go for it. And that was false. It's not twice as much. It's going to be four times as much light. It's twice the size of the telescope. So it's going to be four times the collecting area or four times the light gathering power. Uh, the other one that I ended up, I ended up throwing out the question and taking both answers on number six because I'd meant to, I would meant to have a one of the largest, not just the largest, and technically Pluto is not the largest. Eris is the largest of those objects, so I had meant it to be true that Pluto is one of those largest objects, and so I took that because that was my intention on it, but technically, if you put false, it really isn't the largest of them. It's the second largest of them now, so I have to reword that question for the next time. So I took it either way. If you had it marked wrong originally, you should have an OK written next to it, and I've added a point onto your Great, and I've already put those in D2L, so they're already already updated there. So, On um, the multiple choices, there were a couple that people missed. The first one was number 11, and the spectrum we observe of the Sun should be a continuous spectrum with absorption lines, A. And I don't know, I think a lot of people had a. Continu- was it a continuous spectrum? I think was a common one. And if you recall, we showed the spe- showed the spectrum of the sun, that whole big giant section on the screen, and you could see all of the absorption lines bla- placed on it. But that was, that was one that was missed quite a bit. And let's see. On the next page, number 13, the advantage of a Newtonian reflector, over a refractor. Well, a reflector doesn't have any lenses to grind. It's still going to have a secondary mirror. It's not going to affect the the central hole in the mirror. The big big difference between the two is that there is no chromatic aberration. You're using a reflector instead of a refractor. You're using mirrors instead of lenses. You're not going to have light focused differently depending on the colors. So it should be D, the elimination of chromatic aberration, which is the reason that is. The reason that one is. Alright, who else did we have here? Heather. Good in. There's Heather. Here you go. okay. Alright, the next one that was just about, just about half the class missed was which planet can the pole remain in darkness for 42 years and then have 42 years of constant daylight? That's Uranus, the one that orbits on its side almost. So it's pointing sometimes towards towards the sun, sometimes away from the sun. Okay. And that's, there you go. So that should have been Uranus, answer A, for number 15. Number eighteen, the moon's near side always faces Earth due to, and that's the Earth's tidal forces. So it has nothing to do with the sun's gravity, the Earth's magnetic field, none of the rest of that has anything to do with it. It's only the Earth's tidal force that is pulling on the moon and keeping it toward, keeping it bulged towards the, towards the Earth. And then number 22, that was, that was a tougher one. Not that, because a lot of people got it right in the structures, but then got it on the, on the essay question on it, but then missed it here. But it was the correct order for the structure of the sun And the only one of those that isn't out of order is C. You have the core, the radiative zone, the convective zone. Then you'd have the photosphere, chromosphere, and corona. That's the only one that's actually in order. Everything else has something flipped around on them. So that should have been C. Then the place that really messed it, because really those are the only ones, one, two, three, what did I say, there are about five or six of them. Out of 23, is, isn't bad. Those are the ones that people really. Everybody missed something. I mean, each question was missed at least once. But those are the. It wasn't really that bad. I think it was the short answers that crushed everybody. So that seems to be where we really got hurt. Uh, I'm going to go through all of them. I didn't look at specifically at you know how many each missed or on those, so I can't really tell you. On number 24, it should be that when an electron moves from a lower to a higher energy state, the photon is absorbed. So if it's going from a low energy to a high energy state, it absorbs the photon. Number 25. In general, as a telescope's diameter increases, its angular resolution will get better. There are different ways of wording it. I took other ways of wording it, too, were acceptable. But it should be saying that it's getting, getting better as you increase it. On. Number 26, the grazing incidence optics. That was you just graze the side of the telescope and to focus the light that was to focus x-rays. The tides that occur when there is little tidal variation near first and third quarter moons are the neap tides. Spring tides are the most intense ones when you have at full and new moon when everything's lined up. When they're at right angles to each other then you get the neap tides. Number 28, it's the Jovian planets that have rings around their equators. So each of the Jovian planets, all three of them, have rings of some kind. Number 29, the only planet with no atmosphere of any consequence is Mercury. Everything else, Venus has a thick atmosphere, Earth has an atmosphere, Mars has a thin atmosphere, all the Jovian planets have atmospheres, even Pluto has an atmosphere. Mercury is just so close to the sun it doesn't have anything. And then finally, number 30, the pattern of hot convective cells rising in the photosphere is called granulation. That's what we see on the surface that tells us about convection. But th- that seemed to be where most people got hurt. I mean, I had people who missed the vast majority of those and we lost you know, 10 or 12 points right there, which, which really hurts on, the, hurts on the exam. And what I'm, go- I'm going to do next time I've done this before in the past on and off, sometimes I do it, sometimes I don't, is next time I'll have a word bank with them. Now. My word banks are about three times as long as the, tip- as the answers. So if it's like the electron moves from a lower to higher energy state, it's going to be a photon as absorbed. Absorbed will one of your choices, but so will emitted. So you still have to know it, but sometimes that will jog your memory. Or at least you can narrow it down a little bit. So I will have that for the next one. And hopefully that will help you help a little bit. You know, If it's x-rays, I might have gamma rays in there. If it's something is hotter, I'm going to have colder. So you're still going to have to know it. You're not going to be able to just use elimination to Get the right answer, and I usually pick you know the right answer and one or two wrong answers depending on the depending on the specific question. So I will do that on the on the next one, and see if that helps you a little bit. Should because that, that, that seems to be where a lot of people missed, you know, ten points there, and ten points ends up being twenty percent on the exam, so it really kind of really kind of hurts you. All right, then. I'm gonna hand this out while I have assignments to go over the assignments coming up and then I'll go over and talk about this. This is the this is the extra assignment that I'm adding in. Yay! More work! This is optional. So it's sort of a chance to replace an exam so if you did really really bad on one there's another project you can do that will eliminate that exam grade. Just wipe it out and then replace it with this. In fact let me go over that first while I'm handing it out then I'll go over the other assignments coming up. Two, three, four, Five, Over there, two. I have copies up here. You can pick one up after if you like. One. So, what I do on this, and again, this is a completely optional assignment. What it does is this 50 points, I add it in as an exam grade, so you're going to end up with five exam grades, and then I drop your lowest exam grade. So, if you choose to do it, now you're not required to do it, it's, cer- it's certainly completely optional. If you're doing well on the exams and you've got um, this counts for the four regular exams. So if you're doing well and your lowest grade is a 45 on it, and you'd continue that way through the last two exams, then you're going to drop a 45 in favor of a 50 if you did perfect on this. That's up to you if it's worth. It's not 50 extra credit points. It's 50 points to replace. So it drops an exam grade. So it depends on what your grade is. If your lowest grade in exam is 35, you can get up to a 50. You can raise your 15 points, which raises you about a percent. It's helpful. But I mean, you have to see how, what your exams have done. If you've done really poorly on an exam, it's certainly a good thing. Because if it's going to take off a really low exam grade, you know, if you got a 5 on an exam, I don't think anybody's ever gotten that low. But if you got a 5 on an exam, it would really be good, because it's raising you 40 some points. It could raise you up to 40 points. What I'm looking for, it's something more of a creative project, try to do something a little bit different than the regular exams, but to show me that you've learned something on the material. So I am looking for scientific content in it. So I'm looking not for, like I give you some things that say, you know, a short story or a poem. Well, a beautiful poem that doesn't give any scientific information isn't going to be what I'm looking for. So, I mean, it's a nice poem, but it's not what I'm looking for for this project. Or a short story that just, you know, is set in space but doesn't use, you know, anything that you've learned in this class or anything you can look up in the book to find some information. You want to include some kind of scientific content in it. And I've given you a number of different examples, you know, a video of something, a short story or poem, some kind of model, Um, musical. I've had people do musical ones. I've had people do paintings. If you do like a painting, again, I'm looking if you do a painting of, you know, something like one of the pictures of the day, a supernova remnant or something, you know, do some kind of write up that explains it too. So, you know, some sort of summary that explains the scientific behind what what you did there. if you're not into the music or the writing or the other stuff that I've given you there, I mean into the creative writing, I should say, I've given you some other, like some kind of report you can write, which is you know, scientific analysis of a movie. Again, I don't want a summary of the movie. I can find that easily enough. I'm looking for, you know, what did they do? What did they do wrong scientifically, you know? Spaceship exploded out in, spa- in space and it was, it was you, heard, you heard the explosion, right? Or did they do it right and was it silent? You know, I've, I've seen them both ways. I've seen movies where, they're, where everything explodes and you hear all this, you know, you're out in space looking at the ship and you hear it exploding, which wouldn't happen. I've also seen some, I think it was was it the last Star Trek movie that did that, where they exploded and they ran out to space and it's dead silence. So, so some of them did it right, some of them did it wrong. And that's the kind of thing I'm looking for is you know, go through from a scientific point of view. Obviously they're going you know, <coughs> to, science fiction films are going to take some license. They're not going to be able to follow science perfectly or <coughs> there wouldn't be much of a movie there. You know. If you can't travel through among the stars, you can't do a whole lot. So, and right now, we have no way to, to do that. So that's the kind of thing that I'm looking for. Again, it's not an automatic 50 points. I am looking for the content and what you did on there. So it's not just, oh, I just throw something together and get 50 points. I am looking for that you've included some of the science in there, maybe something you've learned, that I can see that you've got some kind of you know, scientific information in there. It's not due till the end of next month. So I'm giving it to you now just so you have time to think about it. It will count for any of the first four exams. It won't replace the final. No, sorry. So it won't help you with that, but it will help you with any of the first four exams. So people have done it as, you know, just insurance. I might do real bad on exam four. I might start working on something if I end up doing real good, because you should have all your exams back by then, so you'll know how you did and if you need to bother continuing or not. So, but I've done it November 30th. That gives you, you know, the, the next break, the Thanksgiving weekend, to work on it too when you have a little bit longer. Just what you want to do over Thanksgiving break, right, is work on astronomy. I know. But you'll, you have the option. Again, it's completely optional. If you don't turn it in, this, I'm going to put five exam grades in there. This is going to get dropped. So you'll end up exactly where you would have had. So it won't, there's no way it can hurt you. If this is worse than your exam grade, for example, if you get, you know, 45 is your lowest exam grade, and I give you a 40 on this, then it gets dropped, and you're you're no worse off, except that you spent the time doing it. But you know, I, I, if you've got a 45 is your lowest exam grade, I wouldn't recommend doing it. I'd say you're welcome to, but I'd say you're wasting your time. You know, you probably got better things with other classes that you need to work on. So, but if you've gotten one in the 20s or something, you'd want to replace. You know, then it, then it might be worth looking at. See what you can think of if you have ideas or suggestions you want to run by me you're welcome to do that you know catch me after class or email me and I'll be happy to you know tell you whether I think it's a good idea or or not if I think it is, has potential to work So questions Yes um this is kind of unrelated but did they find something on Mars like a metallic object or something They had not heard that one Well I mean it was on a- Comedy Central show last oh. night, but they said something about something metallic being found by one of the rovers. And I wasn't sure if it was like a joke or if it was like... I, have, I did not hear it, but I didn't. I have to look and see. I didn't see anything on the news that the science news is that broadcast anything at least. So, but I'll have to take a look and see, but that would be interesting. I mean, there is certainly there is metal on Mars, so just like there is on Earth, but something unusual would be, would be interesting. All right. Well, picture of the day for today, then. Light trails, so. Nicely framed picture with the house and a lighthouse there off to the, in the front. And then the star trails behind it. So what the photographer did is had a camera set up out here on a tripod. Left the shutter open for about a half an hour, according to this picture. And just, you know, let the stars move as they do. Now, stars don't really move, right? It's it's us doing the moving. So what you're really photographing is the Earth's rotation. So the Earth is rotating the camera and causing the stars to appear to move. And you can see the pattern of all the circles around the North Celestial Pole. You point the camera at the North Celestial Pole. And it's not going to appear to move because it's fixed. But everything else is going to appear to move around it. And if you could do this for a longer time, you'd actually get You'd actually get complete circles. So if you could take this far enough north, if you could go up to you know northern Ala- northern tip of Alaska, someplace you know very far north where it never gets light in the winter, you could actually take this image and have complete circles on it. Further south, you can't do that because if you tried to leave it open for 24 hours, well, sun's going to come out eventually and wa- wash out your film, and you're not going to be able to see not going to be able to see anything. Um, Again, the rotation—it's the rotation of the Earth that you're seeing, not the, not the motion of the stars. There is mo- the stars do move, and we looked at that, that not too long ago—that the stars do have their own motions, but they're incredibly slow. If you remember, Barnard's star was the fastest moving star, and it moved—you know—this little tiny fraction in a telescope in 20 some years. Nothing that you're ever going to be able to notice, uh, with looking with your naked eye over—you know—human lifespans. If you come back, tens of thousands of years from now some of the star positions will have changed a little bit. They are slowly slowly moving and there will be enough that if you could come back in 10 or 20,000 years and look at them, you know, the big dipper will look different than it does right now. Some of those stars are moving in different directions and it won't look exactly like a dipper as it does now. Go back 20,000 years ago, it wouldn't have looked quite the same either. But this is actually this is just the motion of the earth that you're seeing here. So, sort of going back to the very beginning chapter in this case, just seeing sort of the motion of the earth as it as it rotates over, and again, see how quickly it moves. Over just half an hour. It didn't take very much time. You didn't have to leave it open for hours and hours to see this. It was only a half an hour. And you can even see it if you leave things open for just a couple minutes. You'll be able to see that there's you know, a distinct trail there. It's not a, not a, they're not points of light when, they're, when you leave the camera lens open for a long enough period of time. So, Questions? All right, let's go on and finish up. We were almost done with chapter 10. So let's go back there and finish that up. In fact, I was here last time. And we'd been looking at that when we said a star was a certain spectral type, so the sun is a G2 star, for example, it also depends on, there's also another property which is its luminosity. So you can have stars of exactly of the same temperature, very close, between around 4,000, 4,500 degrees. But they can be extremely faint, much fainter than the sun, only a third the brightness of the sun. That's a main sequence star, or a dwarf star as we call them. The class fives were the dwarfs, Roman, letter, Roman numeral V. You can have stars that are hundreds of times the size of the Sun, about the same temperature. So, no difference in temperature. Big difference in luminosity means there's a big difference in size. So that this is a hundred times the brightness of the Sun or 20 times the size of the Sun. That's a red giant star. But it's still the same spectral classification. It's roughly the same temperature and it's going to have the same spectral lines, the same spectral classification as the main sequence star. The third one is a supergiant. Again, temperature's a little bit lower, but close. Luminosity now has gone from less than the sun to 4,000 times as bright as the sun. That's why we see these supergiants from all over the place. They're so many times brighter, we can see them way off there halfway across the galaxy. Whereas something like this, much fainter than the sun, would be invisible at that distance. You'd never be able to see it. They're still there. There's lots of them out there. We just can't see them because they're so faint. So you can get these other classifications. You can get a, you not only classify it as temperature, which the K2 would tell you roughly what its temperature is. That's the OBAFGKM classification. But it also gets a Roman numeral after it. A 5 being a dwarf star, or a main sequence star. A 3 being a giant star and a 1 being a supergiant star. And yes, there's a 2 and a 4 in there. There's subgiants. And what did they classify the other one as the um, larger giants? There's, there's others. So there's a 2 and a 4 in there, as, in there as well. But typically, most stars fall in the 1, 3, and 5 five range. And these are ones that the sun will eventually hit in its lifespan. It's a 5 right now. Eventually, it will be a red giant, and a red, probably a red supergiant as well. So that's what we were finishing up again. We were just talking about the distances. And the reason we went to this is that it had to do with, we were talking about spectroscopic parallax, where we could take the spectrum of the star and use it to determine the distance. Well, you can't just use that portion of the spectral classification. You can't just say, oh, it's a G2 star. It's just like the sun. Because it might be a star, a G2 star that's a lot like the sun, but it might be much bigger. You have to actually get the complete classification or what they call as a two-dimensional. You classify it in one direction, temperature, another direction as luminosity. So that's sort of what we had finished up last time. I just wanted to review the last slide. And then our last thing to determine here is masses. So how do we determine masses of stars? The only way we can weigh a star to determine its mass is it has to be in a binary system. It has to have something orbiting it in order to determine its mass. You know, we can't go weigh any object, whether it's star or planet. You know, I, we have no way to weigh it without watching something orbit it, without having something orbiting it. We have to use this combination in order to be this thing, to be able to ha- determine it. So what we do is we measure the orbital motion. So we measure the orbit. You watch it over time. There are stars that we can really see as pictured up here. These are actual images here. You know, where is the star? Well, you can watch these and if you look at it here in the 1948, you have one image. Twelve years later, now the stars have moved a little bit and you can see they're in a different and you can trace them around. You can actually trace out the orbit. So you can map out the orbit, find out how far the stars are away from each other, find out how long they take to orbit each other, and that allows you to get the masses. Going back to Kepler's laws, to use Kepler's laws to deter- can, can allow you to determine the, mass- the masses. So these ones are easy. These are one type of binary star that you can see. And this is what we call a visual, a visual binary. We can see the two stars. You actually look at it through the telescope, and I can see one star, and I can see another, and I can watch them orbit each other. Not in real time, right? You're not going to just sit there and watch it in the telescope and watch one flowing around the other. They're much too long for that. But you can take an image of it this year, take another image of it five years later, and five years later. If they're close enough, here you can see that over, what was it, about 40, 48 to 83, so 48, about 40 years worth. By the time it actually got back to where it would have started, probably been about 40 years to orbit. But it's something that you can certainly can, certainly can be measured. So you can actually you can actually see the two components. That's a very small fraction of star small fraction of the binaries. They have to be spread apart far enough that we can see them, and they got to be close enough to us that we can actually our telescopes can actually resolve them as two individual stars. The resolving power has to be great enough to separate them. Otherwise, if, they're much for, if these stars were a lot further away, you can see how they're almost touching in those images. If they're much further away, they're going to look like one star. And we wouldn't be able to watch them orbit each other directly, but we can watch them indirectly. So one other example is what we call a spectroscopic binary. You can't see two stars. When you look at it, you only see one. You only see that one star. But when we take a spectrum of it, we see the spectra of two stars mixed together. And if they're orbiting each other, sometimes one star's coming towards you, one's going away, right? Other times, you know, switched around. If it's coming towards you, blue shift, going away from your red shift, go back to the Doppler effect. So you're going to see, you know, here's what you should get for these lines. Well here at one time, they're all shifted, they're shifted towards the red, here they're shifted towards the blue. You're seeing primarily the light of the brighter star, so you're going to see that star moving a little bit towards you, moving a little bit further away. If you look at, instead of looking at the image, looking at the photograph and how they're actually moving each, each year, you might look at a spectra every few, every few years or every few months, depending on how fast they're orbiting. And you can then determine the, pa- the period and um, radius from that. These are the most common. most binaries are spectroscopic binaries. Because that works as far away as you can see the star, you can measure the motions. As long as you can get a spectrum of the star you can measure it and you can determine that it is a binary star. It doesn't have to be super close to us or very widely spread apart like this to be able to see it. These can be very close together or they can be very very far away from us, even if they're further apart, very far away from us and we can still see them. Now the third type is even rarer, really the rarest case, is what we call an eclipsing binary. Those are very rare. Those are the very exact cases where we are looking at the two stars edge on as they're orbiting. So one passes right in front of the other. And we have to be looking at them almost exactly edge on for it to be. You know, remember how hard it was for the moon to eclipse? right? The moon is tilted. And the moon's big. The moon's not just a little tiny dot there. You have to have these things. You've got to be looking almost straight edge on, flat. Looking edge on to a piece of paper. Write them on a piece of paper. You've got to be looking exactly edge on. If you tilt it half a degree, forget it. You're out of luck. You know? Moon only has to be tilted half a degree to push it away from the sun. Because that's about how big they are. So if you tilt these even a fraction of a degree, these are only the ones that are exactly edge on. But there's so many stars out there that we do see them. So an eclipsing binary is actually a star that will dim in brightness. So you'll watch. You'll have one star. You'll get the regular brightness of this bright star. You don't see the fainter one. It's too far away. It's too close. It's invisible to us. But we can see the effect when that fainter star passes in front of the darker star, a brighter star. It's going to block out some of the light. So it blocks out some of that light. is not getting to us. The star overall is going to look a little bit fainter than it would. <coughs> then it comes back out. It's brighter. It dims again just a little bit. What's that? That's this, that's this fainter star disappearing behind the brighter star. What you really see, this total is actually the sum of the two brightnesses of the two stars you're seeing. you know, Bright star and faint star added together. They're all mixed together in your telescope. Part of one gets blocked out, makes it significantly fainter. The fainter one gets blocked out, makes it a little bit fainter. And you see a pattern here. This pattern occurs and you can determine how long it takes. How long does it take to go from number one to number six here when you back at the same stage? And you can then determine how long it takes those stars to orbit each other. So that's another way that you can actually measure directly and directly determine a binary star. So there's three different types, visual, Rare that you have to be able to see them. They have to be close enough to be able to be seen. I mean, any star star would be a visual binary if you could see enough detail. If you could get there, get closer to it, or bring it closer to you, you'd be able to see it separate. Spectroscopic is how we see the vast majority of stars. And the very rare cases where they're edge on, just looking flat. Imagine looking right along that sheet of paper, right at the edge of that sheet of paper. Then you're seeing them as eclipsing when that one star happens to pass exactly in front of the other. And this will dim, and this can sometimes dim significantly, and can actually be visible to the naked eye. There is a star in the constellation of Perseus, which is a fall. That's one that's out out now, um, called Algol. Algol is a star that the, the, it's the demon star. If you go back to mythology, it's the head of it's Perseus is holding the head of Medusa, and Algol is representing Medusa's head. It's the demon star because it changes in brightness. It has a brightness that's nicely visible. But there are times when its companion star passes in front of it and makes it much, much fainter. And this is something that people could notice even, thank you, even thousands of years ago they were able to notice that this star was getting significantly fainter at times. And heavens weren't supposed to change. This thing was changing. Well, it's the demon star. Something, something's really odd going on there. So that's one example of these. Most of them you can't see like that. But that's one example of one where you can actually go out and see it and you can look up, you know, when is Algol supposed to have its minimum? When is it supposed to be at its faintest? And you can go and look and see and compare it, you know, before, compare it after. You can actually see the brightness changes in that star. Alright. Stellar masses. Once we determine the masses, we find out that there is a pattern on the main sequence as to where they fall in the main sequence. The very massive stars fall in the upper left side. Very, fa- very uh, low mass stars fall on the lower right. So you can almost imagine, if you look at the main sequence, the very lowest mass stars here and they continually increase as you go up towards the top. Those are the most, the highest mass stars. So mass is what determines where a star will, where, where a star will fall. That mass determines what its temperature is going to be. Higher mass stars are going to end up More mass is going to end up producing more energy. You're going to be significantly hotter. And they're also going to be producing more energy. They're significantly brighter. So you get the high mass stars up in the upper corner. Low mass stars aren't going to have as much energy. They're going to be significantly cooler and much fainter than the sun. And they're going to end up down on this side. So the mass is really going to determine where you're going to end up on the main sequence. What kind of masses of stars do we see? Sometimes you hear that the, sun, the sun's what, a typical star? The sun's actually an atypical star. It's a rather small, it's a rather big star. Let's hear about all these other big stars, but this, is, so this sort of sets out the mass distribution of stars. Where are all the stars? If you look at all the different stars you can, most of the ones you're used to seeing when you go out at night and look at them, they're in that little teeny tiny part there. There aren't very many of the very big (coughs) bright stars. Most of the stars, especially these on the main sequence, here is 41% are dwarfs, really small dwarf stars, smaller than the sun, smaller than a quarter the size of the sun. Add in the next block, that's 28%. That gets you up to 69. Those are stars that are up to about half the size of the sun, half the mass of the sun. So we're up to what, 69? You Add another. 19% Nineteen percent gets you up to eighty eight percent, so eighty eight percent of the stars are the mass of the sun and the main sequence are the mass of the sun or less there 's lots of low mass stars out there. you just don 't see them because most of these these are all invisible to us they 'd have to be right next door unless they 're right in our local neighborhood they 're invisible we 're not going to be able to see them, not because they 're not emitting light, but just because they 're emitting so little so such a small amount of light. That we can't see them. Whereas these big giant blue giants that are way up at the upper part of the main sequence, you know, this very small percentage, when you start talking about, you know, .8 percent or even larger, .3, the really largest ones, .06 <coughs> percent. but we can see them halfway across the galaxy. So we can see them all over. We've got a much bigger sample to pick from to be able to see these. There are a lot more small stars, but there are a lot more small stars. A lot more stars that are much smaller than the Sun than there are stars that are much bigger than the Sun. The other thing that has to do with is lifetimes. How long does a star live? All stars don't live the same amount of time. I think I've given you the number, right? The Sun has about a 10 billion year lifespan. It's 5 billion years old, it's got about 5 billion years to go. A star that is much, much smaller than the Sun has a longer lifespan. It won't last just 10 billion years, it might last 100 billion years or 500 billion years. That means that in the age of the universe, every single one of these stars that's ever formed is still here. They haven't gone any place. So they're all still, so of course we're gonna build up more of them, right? They haven't died. There hasn't been time for them to die. A star like the Sun lives about 10 billion years. Most of the stars like the Sun are still around universe is about 13, 14 billion years old. So not all of them, but the you know, cutoff is somewhere in here. Any star less than this, they're all still around, every star that formed. That age gets, that the lifetime gets shorter and shorter as you go up there. And it goes up very quickly. When you get to those highest mass stars, those ones that are more than 20 solar masses, that .06%, their lifespan might be five million years. Long time, right? Five million years they're going to be around. Well, how many five million years have there been in 13 billion years? It's a lot of five millions. So how many generations of those stars have gone and dead? And they're gone. So you're also kind of sweeping them out. How many of those stars have come and gone in just the age of the sun? So there's, a, there's an effect there that not necessarily do you only form more small stars, which may be the case as well, but you have an effect that the small stars aren't dying. They're living, they're living forever, as far as we're concerned. If something's living for 500 billion years, that's you know, 10, 50 times the age of the universe. So you've got to wait for 50 more times the age before the first ones start to, get, start to finish up and use their fuel and, and leave and actually die and dis- start to disappear. So they're just building up. You just keep adding more and adding more and they're not going any place. So two combinations. One, one is what you see and one is actually how the, what the ages are like. So let's go through and summarize chapter 10, which said, and I went through this, started this last week, so distances to the stars only works for the nearest stars, but we can measure them by parallax. That's the apparent shift of a nearby star as compared to the background stars. So we could use that to measure the distances, distances to the stars. We had an apparent brightness and an absolute. Apparent brightness is what we see from the Earth. An absolute brightness is really how bright the star actually is. So how bright does the star is the star really appearing to be? Is, is the star really in the sky? We can easily measure its apparent brightness. How much how bright does it look? Hey, It's a real bright star, it's a real faint star. You know, we can measure, we can put an instrument on the telescope that counts how many photons you get from the star and say, oh, here's how bright it is, here's how bright it is. Absolute brightness depends on the distance. The absolute brightness is what we really want. We want to know how bright that star really is. We don't want to know that it's bright because it's close. Just right because it's closed, we want to know how much energy is it really putting out. So that's the important one that we're trying to determine when we build our HR diagrams. We went through the spectral classes, O B A F G K M, And those correspond to the different surface temperatures. So hotter stars, class O. Cooler stars, class M. So that's one, that's one measure. The other is stellar size depends on the luminosity and the temperature of the star. So how big is the star? I can actually measure how big a star is without being able to see it. I showed you one where you could actually see the size of the star. There aren't many like that. There aren't many stars that are big enough and close enough to us to be able to see them as a disk, to actually be able to see a disk in the telescope. It's a very rare thing. But we can determine it. If we know the luminosities and the temperatures, we can estimate the sizes as compared to the sun. So we can say a star is the same temperature as the sun, but its luminosity is a lot more, then it's going to be a lot bigger than the sun. Or it's the same temperature of the sun, and its luminosity was a lot less, then it's going to be a lot smaller. So you can use that as a rough way to get estimates of sizes when it's something you can't directly go out and measure. Finally, HR diagram, which we're going to come back to in just a minute. I'm going to go through and do another HR diagram again here. Um, It plots luminosity versus temperature. So you have have temperature on the x-axis going horizontally, and you have the luminosity going vertically. Most of the stars lie on what we call the main sequence, which is a line that goes from the upper left corner and trails down towards the lower right. Almost all the stars la- land there, land on the main sequence. Um, we did our first extension of the distance ladder. We've talked about parallax a couple of times. We now have spectroscopic parallax, which is another way to determine distances. It's not a parallax. It has nothing to do with parallax in that it's, other than that it's determining distances. So it's not a parallax in terms of any shifting. Spectroscopic parallax uses the spectrum, of the star, where it gets its name, spectroscopic parallax. You take a spectrum of the star, you determine where it lies on the main sequence, and that gives you its luminosity. If you can determine its luminosity, then you can estimate the distances. And then we went through the binary star systems. I just erased that. Binary star systems were um, visual binaries, spectroscopic binaries, or eclipsing binaries. But when we have two stars orbiting each other, then we can determine their masses. Once we have two objects orbiting each other, we can get estimates of the masses. That's the only way we can do it. If a star is out there all by itself, and we can't see anything orbiting it, then we have no way to determine a mass of it. If it's just one star by itself, we can't determine the mass. Um, same would have been true in the solar system with the planets. Hard to determine the mass of Mercury or Venus because they didn't have anything orbiting them. Yes, now they do. We put satellites in orbit so we can use that to measure the mass of Mercury or Venus much more accurately. But if you don't have anything orbiting it, it's very hard to get the exact masses of what's uh, exact mass of something. And that mass, once we can determine it, really determines, we find that they determine where the star ends up on the main sequence. High mass stars in the upper left and low mass stars in the lower right. So chapter 10, yay. Questions, questions? Otherwise, we're going to do an extension of chapter ten and go through the HR diagram a little more detail. I'll start that today. We've got about ten minutes left or so and then I'll finish finish this up on finish it up on Friday. So, HR diagram. And again, you've gone over some of this gone over some of this before, but the HR diagram is a plot of temperature versus brightness. Plotted in a graph form. It is really a basic tool. You're going to be seeing it. I introduced it in the last chapter in chapter 10. You're going to see it in chapter 11. You're going to see it in chapter 12. You're going to see it in chapter 13. You're going to see it once or twice in even the later chapters when we get out to galaxies. You'll still see it a little bit. It is really the basic tool for astronomy of the stars, for studying the stars. It organizes them and it tells us a lot of information about them. We can learn by looking at where a star falls on the HR diagram, we know whether it's very bright or very faint, whether it's very hot or very cool. We can learn something about its mass depending on where it falls diagonally in this direction, high mass stars, low mass stars. We can learn something about its size by the other direction. The smallest stars are down in this corner. The biggest stars would be up in the upper right hand corner. So it gives us, in one tool, it gives us a lot of information. If you plot stars on there, you can see a lot of, you can learn a lot about them. We can also learn about how the stars evolve. So stars do change. They don't have, a star like the sun isn't going to stay right where it is on the main sequence all the time. Eventually, it uses up its source of energy and it starts to change. And it changes, its temperature will change and its brightness will change. So where you'd plot it on the HR diagram will then change. All right, If it was right here and it gets hotter, now it's starting to go up a little bit. If it's getting cooler, sorry, if it's getting brighter, it's going up. If it's getting a little bit cooler, it's going up here. So if it gets brighter and cooler, it moves up towards the upper right. And you can actually map these out. Not something you ever see in, again, the given lifetime of a star, of a single star, but that you can see if you look at them over time. If you look at them over very long long times, and you look at whole bunches of stars, you can determine, we can see how they're going to change. Where are stars like the sun going to be? And what's going to end up to them when they die? Where are they going to end up? The components of the HR diagram are, on the horizontal axis, is the temperature. Not so bad, right? Temperatures are nice and easy. We can measure temperatures pretty easily. But, astronomers don't want to do anything simple and easy still. So, temperature is here, but temperature increases that direction. Well, Backwards, right? You don't put the big numbers on that side, you put the small numbers on that side. But no, these are the hotter stars, are on this side, and these are the cooler stars. So. Temperature, again, makes sense, but it's, it's increasing in the opposite direction. There are a couple other things you can plot here. They're all measures of the temperature. So there are other ways that you can plot this. You might see it plotted as the spectral class. right? O stars down to M stars. O, B, A, F, G, K, M. You could plot it that way. Remember, that's telling you the temperature. O stars are very hot, M stars are very cool. It's plotting the same thing, just in a different measurement. We don't directly measure the temperatures of stars. You can, I can determine them, but when you're just looking at a star, it's not something that, in, that instinctively comes out is the temperature. You look at a star, oh, that's 3,825 degrees. It's not a number you typically get. Now, when, a the, when someone is doing a theoretical model, well, that's what comes out of the computer, is the temperature of the star. So you'll see this used if someone is doing like a theoretical model of how a star might change, they'll get exact temperatures. When an astronomer is looking at it, they tend to get it making something visually. Then they're going to get usually a spectral class or what we call the color index. This is actually something that we can measure directly. Spectral classes require taking a spectrum spreading it out, measuring and determining what the spectral class is. A color index is a much easier value to get. It is something we only have to look at the light in two different two different sets of two different wavelengths. So what it is is we look at two different two different wavelengths. We look at blue. We look at it in blue light and we look at it in visual. which is kind of the yellowish-green area part of the spectrum. So we measure how how much light are we getting in the blue part of the spectrum, how much light are we getting in the yellowish-green part of the spectrum. That's a very quick way to measure the temperature. Because a star that's emitting more blue light than visual light is going to be a hotter star. A star that is emitting more visual light than blue light is going to be a cooler star. By how much they exceed each other tells will tell you exactly how hot or how cool the star is. So for something like the sun, if you take its magnitude, right? We love magnitudes backwards. Everything's backwards with them. But its B, ma- B minus V, if you take its blue magnitude in the blue, how bright does it appear in the blue? And subtract how bright it appears in the visual, you get some number. What did I? Point six five six or so. The exact number isn't important, but there's some number. So a star that you measured this color index to would tell you exactly the temperature of the star compared to the sun. It would give you some index. If you get a much cooler star, it's going to be very red, meaning that you're going to get very little blue light and a lot of visual light. This is where the backwards part comes in. A lot of blue light. Or sorry, very, a cool star. Very little blue light means a big magnitude, numerically, right? Number is going to be bigger. This number is going to be smaller. So a red star, what did I say? Positive. So positive means a red star, and maybe as much as plus 2 or so, for a very, very red star. Again, red star means it's not emitting a lot of blue light. It's emitting a lot of visible light. Because the magnitudes are backwards, this number is going to be very big. This number is going to be very small. You're going to take a big number and subtract a small number, and you're going to get a big positive number. Make sense? Okay. Again, you're not going to have to go through the calculations with this. I just wanted to show you where this comes from, because you will see it on some, the, on some of the graphs. A negative number means a blue star. Maybe minus 0.5 is a very blue star. Again, blue star is emitting a lot of blue light. A lot of blue light means the blue magnitude number is going to be a lot smaller. Smaller number. You're going to be letting less visible light. So that number is going to be bigger. You get a small number minus a big number, you're going to get something negative. So when you plot them here, you're going to get color index is going to be negative here, positive here. So that's plotted at least in the right direction, right? You have the small numbers on that side and the bigger numbers on this side. But those are three things that you will see plotted on the x-axis of the main sequence. And we're just about done here, so I'm going to go ahead and stop there. And then I'll come back, I'll put that back up on, on Friday and we'll go through and finish, finish that. So do have a quiz on Friday is chapter 10. It's going to be HR diagram. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you that in advance. It's going to be all about the HR diagram. So I will finish that up before and then give you the quiz. And then we'll have a lab working on something similar. So, If you came in later, I do have exams I can give you, I can give you back if you want them.